Welcome to the Andy Griffin Show, the number one talk show in St. George, starring Andy Griffin. Good Tuesday morning to you, 11 minutes after 9 o'clock. Thanks for tuning in to the Andy Griffin Show. I'm Andy. It's good to be here. I got a couple of cool uh, announcements. First of all, uh, on the program today, we've got a couple of guests coming up later at 9.33 or so. Dan Nordgren from the Small Business Association will be on the program. Uh, They're opening opening a satellite office right here in St. George uh, to try and help small businesses in this area. We'll talk to Dan about that and what that means for our, uh, our folks here locally. Uh, and then at 9:45, Chris Stewart, the U.S. Congressman, will be on the program. We'll take some. Uh, we'll talk to him about uh, some new legislation he has put forth to help protect small town Utah, small town America, but small town Utah in particular. And uh, we'll also take some phone calls there. That's uh, about 9:45 this morning. Now, also coming up, we're going to have uh, some Andy Griffin Show shirts for sale. Uh, t-shirts i want to make them reasonable they're going to be about 15 bucks uh and we have a couple of cool slogans that will be on them uh and uh i i'm not trying to make really money on the deal i think i get like a buck a shirt or something like that but we just wanted to to put them out there i actually don't know how much for shirt i'm going to get (laughs) i have no idea my son is designing them but um uh, i i thought it would be fun and uh, we we just uh, i just kind of feel like we have a pretty cool little community uh, that uh, listeners to the Andy Griffin show. And I felt like there might be a way to help us, uh, I don't know, tighten up uh, the, how we feel about things, how we feel about uh, politics, how we feel about St. George, how we feel about this community. So uh, one of them is uh, Dixie spirit themed and uh, uh, keeping Dixie great uh, and things like that. So anyway, we're going to, we're going to, we'll unveil those shortly. Uh, and then one other announcement, uh, we have, uh, thank goodness, the hold function, I don't know if you noticed the last two days, the hold function is back and <clears throat> working correctly on the program. Uh, so instead of having to call and call and call, I can actually put you on hold while you wait your turn to uh, get onto the program. Uh, that then will facilitate the fact that Allie Hamlin, our news director, will be producing this show. What, what that really means, it sounds like a, it's a big word. She's going to be in the other studio uh, she will uh, be the first person you talk to when you call the program. Uh, if you would give her your first name and what it is your your preferred topic, uh, then she will uh, basically set up a queue for who's called first and what the topics are, and we'll take your calls. And uh, that is, we're going to begin that on Friday of this week, Open Line Friday. So uh, hopefully all the bugs are worked out with the phone system. Uh, I know our our engineer has been working feverishly, Jeff Basham, at getting that taken care of. So uh, hopefully we've got that all figured out. I think we do. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Always have to cross your fingers when it comes to technology. <clears throat> anyway, uh, so open lines here for the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. If you'd like to call and be a part of the show, I'd uh, love to hear from you, 673-5890. I have a couple of topics I'm going to talk about. But uh, as always with the open line portion of the show, if there's something on your mind, well, you know, bring it. Let's let's talk about it. It's nine fourteen now. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about an article I read a few days ago, um, and and it's a pretty good little analogy for where we're at right now. Um, 
All right. So you've ever had a boss that was kind of a jerk, you know, just unrealistic expect, expectations, uh, short fuse, uh, maybe even creepy. You've had bosses like that, right? Uh, but generally speaking, just a jerk. All right. Uh, so imagine if there was an anti-jerk law. Uh, not too many people are going to endorse this law. I say, wait a minute, you can't have an anti-jerk law. Uh, libertarians, of course, people, constitutionalists will say, well, there's no way that we could possibly have an anti-jerk law. It's discriminating against everything that we believe in. Economists might appeal to the standard economics textbook conclusion that mandated benefits, including the right to sue your employer for jerkiness, are just inefficient. It would bog down our court system. It, it would screw everything up. But really, that's economists and that's constitutionalists. What about your average everyday people? Imagine if there was an anti-jerk law. Would you be for it or, or against it? Probably against it, right? Because, well, one of the big reasons is jerkiness is subjective. Uh, what I think is a jerk, you might think is strict. What I think is a jerk, you might think is uh, charming or offbeat. What I think is a jerk, you might think is uh, is uh, just, you know, funny. Uh but imagine if there was an anti-jerk law anyway. Here's some of the things that would, that would happen. Bosses would try to avoid even the appearance of jerkiness. That would uh, hinder their job, actually. They couldn't ask you to do something and uh, get on your case about doing it in case they might appear to be a jerk and thus, therefore, be sued. Since bosses try to avoid the appearance of jerkiness, litigious employees don't have a lot to work with. That's not necessarily a bad thing. As long as judges and juries are sympathetic, however, they do lower the de facto burden of proof, allowing the war on jerks to continue indefinitely. You see kind of where we're going on this one? Uh, cynical bosses or bosses in turn defend themselves by trying to preemptively discredit litigious employees, thus making them bigger jerks, I guess. Cynical bosses go a step further by trying not to hire employees who are relatively likely to cry jerk. In other words, a part of the interview process would be uh, you know, a, a thinly, thinly disguised effort at, at uh, weeding out the uh, whiners. HR departments would institute Orwellian anti-jerk training. Hmm, we have any of that going on right now? <laughs> you see where I'm going on this? Where participants get punished for pointing out that the HR folks are domineering and insulting. In other words, HR reps exemplify the very thing they claim to oppose, jerkiness or... Well, we'll get to the point here in a second. If so-called jerky managerial styles enhance productivity, for instance, a, a style like a, a coach, society would forfeit major benefits because they, well, that kind of stuff just wouldn't fly. So anyway, as far as, uh, as, far as we know, the anti-jerk law, uh, there, there isn't one anywhere. But there are some laws in place all over the place, discrimination laws. Uh, bosses try to avoid discrimination lawsuits, but ones with poor social skills or bad luck still get sued. Bosses try to avoid the appearance of discrimination. Uh, but you can see where we're going with this one. Litigious employees don't have a lot to work with. But as long as judges and juries are sympathetic, they lower the bar or the burden of proof about what discrimination consists of. 
bosses in turn defend themselves by trying to be preemptively uh, discrediting litigious employees. You see where we're going on this one? Cynical bosses go a step further by trying not to hire. It's going to be in the, the uh, interview process. If someone might cry discrimination, they're probably not going to hire them, but they can't really let them know that. They have to disguise it. HR departments institute Orwellian anti-discrimination training where participants get punished for pointing out that HR folks are hostile and bigoted. In other words, HR reps exemplify the very thing they claim to oppose. Do you see where we're going here? If so-called discrimination enhances productivity, uh, society forfeits major benefits. So you can't get after people. You can't discriminate people for not working hard. The, this, he discriminated against me is about as objective as he was a jerk to me. In both cases, they feel very real to the accuser. In both cases, they feel very unfair to the accused. If you knew neither party, you'd probably decline to even express an opinion, and with good reason. Do you, do you understand what we're saying here? We've gotten so backwards, so upside down in discrimination in this country. People are so offended to the point of lawsuits and litigiousness that uh, we can't be who we are. We, I mean, productivity suffers. Uh, the, the big joke going around, and I'm not going to say it happens in this company, but it might, uh, is every time you have a sexual harassment training, like nobody sexually harasses anybody in, in the workplace unless there's a sexual harassment training seminar. And then guess what happens for the next 24 to 48 hours? All the stuff they tell you you're not supposed to do, you you're joking around and doing it. it. Happens every time, with every company. It's just, it's it's to the point where it's it's ridiculous. Now, I I was out of the workplace, the office workplace, for twenty years. I, I had a job. I was a sports editor at a local newspaper here uh, in the mid nineties, um, and. Every job I had after that uh, was either a freelance job or it was a work-at-home job. And so, you know, for, for me, I was not in the workplace and, and I wasn't around, you know, an office full of people until about two years ago when I got hired for this job. And, you know, my wife, who had been in a work uh, environment all this, all these two decades in the interim, uh, was like, you're not going to believe what it's like in, in an office environment now. And I'm like, ah, oh, come on, you, you can't be that bad, right? And then, and then I got in an office environment, and there were seminars about words that you can and can't say. You can't do things like compliment someone's outfit, male or female. You say something like, I like that sweater, that can be construed as sexual harassment. Or, hey, your hair looks nice today. You can't do that anymore. That was my repertoire, man. I was I was the compliment guy. I like to walk around the office and say, I see someone with a nice, hey, nice sweater. I see someone with a new pair of shoes. Hey, great shoes. Oh, I like the way your hair looks today. Can't do that anymore. It's crazy what we've become. And I, I don't think it's for the better. Now, some people would argue, well, hey, you know what? That's for the better because bad stuff was going on. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Bad stuff was going on, but it wasn't, in my opinion, it wasn't prevalent. It wasn't as bad as what it's made out to be. All right, let's go to the phone lines, open lines now for the next uh, five or ten minutes. What's going on? Uh, how are you doing today? Uh, what's up, Andy? This topic has got me so fired up, 
And I'm going to tell you why we're never going to see an anti-jerk law, because the biggest offenders would be our politicians themselves. <laughs> I mean, locally, can we get a hold of our politicians? Like Brad Last, he can't seem to figure out how to answer a phone or answer an email. And then I just sent an email to a local city councilwoman or the city council in general here in Hurricane. I'm not going to name names, but her response was so dismissive and disrespectful of the issue I was trying to bring up. So, I mean, who, how are we going to institute a jerk law when the biggest violators would be the politicians themselves? Yeah, that, that's a good point. And, and you know, I, I know they have to balance as busy as they are and as big as their constituencies are, but, uh, the, the, you know, most of the politicians are pretty inaccessible. I agree with you. Even for someone in the media like me, I, I try to get a hold of people, and I have to go through three and four layers of public relationists just to get to speak to, you know, someone like Spencer Cox or, or even Chris Stewart or Mike Lee or, you know, the guys that I consider pretty good politicians. It's still very hard to get a hold of them. That's got to be frustrating for the average American, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, they love our dollars. They love to put their little cute signs up with their the flags and their cute little glamour shots with all that Aquanet and all that <laughs> stuff, make them look all pretty. And they'll take everything from us, but when we, they won't take our opinion. And I'm kind of sick of the cronyism here. We keep talking about masks and freedom. I feel like I'm having the ultimate mask. I can't even voice my opinion to my local politicians that have business interests and serve the supposed business interests, and they're supposed to serve my interests. I don't feel like they're serving anything of mine. Anyways, that's my opinion. I hope other callers will call in. Thank you so much, Andy. Have a good morning. Yeah, thanks for calling today. I I agree uh, quite quite a bit, actually. One thing I will say Programs like this are important, and, and you know, you can, you can say you like the show, you hate the show, you like the host, you hate this host, but, but I can tell you this, when you do call, I know politicians, local politicians that do listen to this show, whether it's live or they listen to the podcast later, uh, they do listen to this show and some of the others that are on, although some, some of them are a little too radical for, for a lot of us, but uh, they listen to this show, so uh, maybe we can't get through to our politicians, and that's a bad, bad thing, but... At the very least, we can go on the air, we can talk, we can say, hey, this is what's really bothering me. You know, we had the issue, uh, a couple of issues here in town. There was a, a talk, the Utah Jazz were going to be, a, a, there was going to be a big mural in town, right here in St. George, with the Utah Jazz theme on that one. Uh, we had, it was a major topic for a day on this show. And uh, guess what? The mural kind of went away for a little while. Now, I don't know if they're going to try to bring it back and, and kind of slide it in the back door or what they're going to do, but... For a while, it you know, it, people were able to kind of air their grievances and say, hey, we don't really want this. We don't want a giant mural about the Utah. If we're going to do a mural in St. George, shouldn't it be, you know, Red Rocks or something? I don't know. I mean, I love the jazz. Don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, this, this type of show, I really appreciate those of you that call and air your opinions. There's a couple of other things, you know, the, the uh, Dixie uh, name has been a big one. And uh, they've had some coalitions and, and some petitions, but honestly, they nobody was listening uh, until we got it on the air and we talked about it. We were able to get, you know, Biff Williams, the president of Dixie State, on here, uh, Jason Booth, the athletic director, and I think they got the message. Now, I don't know that it will change their decision, but I think they got the message that, hey, we're not happy. You're trying to take Dixie out of Dixie. You're trying to remove the Dixie spirit out of southern Utah. I, I think it helped. I think it worked. 
So if you have an opinion, something that uh, may be a, a little bee in your bonnet, please call 673-5890 is the phone number. Again, we've got coming up in three or four minutes, we have a couple of guests. Uh, Dan Nordgren will join us from the Small Business Association. Uh, we'll talk with him for a few minutes. And then Chris Stewart at uh, 945. So nine, about 933, Dan will be on the air at about 945. Uh, Chris Stewart will be on the air. Hopefully we'll have enough time to take phone calls and, and things like that. A uh, couple of other things I wanted to talk about. Uh, this one uh, was, you know, this is a favorite topic of mine. You guys know that uh, this is this is big on my mind. But uh, lockdowns, lockdowns don't work. Lockdowns are killing us. And I thought it was done. I thought it was a settled deal. I talked about uh, to Brian about this yesterday. I thought that okay, we're, we're not going to have lockdowns. They don't work. They don't stop the spread of the disease, and they cost people their their livelihood they cost people their mental health and yet here we are again especially a few hundred miles to the west of here in california they're locking things down again uh they're getting i think a lot of resistance this time and i think that if they tried to do it in utah now this is not a threat i'm not trying to threaten anybody but i think if they tried to do that in utah and especially in southern utah uh I, I don't think it would go over very well. I, I think that uh, I think there would be resistance here, and, and we're not we're not a people here in Southern Utah that we're we're not going to riot and, and things like that. But I think businesses are going to say, "Well, you want to shut us down, but we're going to be open anyway." I think that's what would, would happen. I think that's what should happen. Um, good article online uh, on the uh, Foundation for Economic Education uh, by Chloe Anagnos. And uh, she basically writes down what lockdowns do. And uh, I do need to get a commercial break here very quickly. But uh, she said four major things that lockdowns do. Number one, they brew political division. Lockdowns generally fall along political uh, party lines. The uh, liberal uh, side of things, the Democrats are more likely than Republicans to overstate the risks of death to young people in particular whereas Republicans are more likely to believe that the flu is as deadly as a COVID. Uh, basically, both sides overreacting to their side of things, but it, it tends to sow a political disharmony. Lockdowns affect mental health big time, uh, from you know people getting laid off of work, people being stuck in their homes, uh, if you're in a toxic environment at home anyway, where there's abuse or other issues, it's magnified. We'll leave it at that because I could do a whole show on that for sure. Uh, how about this one uh, that she outlined? She said, you know, lockdowns actually turn what can be therapeutic shopping online to an addiction. Uh, you get start spending money online. You're stuck at home. You're like, well, they're going to bring me stuff. I just keep shopping online. Could be an addiction, just a theory. Uh, and then finally, lockdowns lead to more suicide attempts. And uh, statistics now are now showing, especially in California and Georgia, where they did two big studies, that suicide attempts are way up, were way up rather in March and April during the first lockdown. And that they expect, and it's just now being instituted, lockdown in California, they expect that suicide attempts will be way up once again as emergency rooms deal with 
the fact that, uh, well, we're locking down and we're shutting people down, and it's it's just a brutal deal. All right, uh, got to go. When we come back, uh, Dan Nordgren will join me from the SBA. We'll talk about small businesses and what that satellite office here in southern Utah will mean to you and I. Welcome back to the Andy Griffin Show. It's 934 on KDXU. We've got Dan Nordberg. I said his name wrong. I said Nordgren earlier, but it is Nordberg on the phone line with me. Dan, how you doing, man? Hey, good morning, and I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on the show uh, today. Last week you were in town. You guys had a ribbon cutting. And, uh, well, you know what? Instead of me trying to fumble through it, I'm going to let you explain what happened. Yeah, you bet. So last week in, in St. George at the, the federal building downtown area, we opened up our new satellite office, did the ribbon cutting, and had about 30 to 40 people from the community on what was, uh, I think, the coldest day of the year you all had had at that point. Yeah, it was. Um, you know, real balmy morning in the, the high 40s. But uh, it was <laughs> it was a great event, and we had people come out um, to really support this new office that we're opening. And we're very excited to have a fixed presence from this point forward in the St. George community. Tell us, first of all, what is the U.S. Small Business Administration? What's it for? You bet. So the U.S. Small Business Administration is a federal agency, and we are tasked by Congress with really being the voice for the, over, the America's over 30 million small businesses. So we are working with them to help really start, grow, expand, and if necessary, recover their small businesses. And certainly during COVID-19 and some of the challenges we face with this pandemic, we've been doing all of the above. And so we are very focused on recovery, but also really focused on helping existing businesses kind of change and retool their business models to help get through this, as well as help entrepreneurs who have their business plans ready to go, um, you know, help them get the financing they need, get the business counseling support they need to get their idea off the ground. So, um, you know, every facet of small business, we really try to help and we're, we're there to support America's small businesses. So what does it mean to have a satellite office here in St. George as opposed to, uh, you know, maybe having one other locations? Yeah, great question, Andy. I mean, for context, every state in the country has an SBA district office, and that is staffed with professionals that really help and work in tandem with the local communities to support small business endeavors and aspiring entrepreneurs. In Utah, the SBA district office is located in Salt Lake City. So obviously that's about a four-and-a-half, five-hour ride yeah. to get to our central hub of services. We have been really focusing the past few years on bridging the gap between urban and more rural population centers. So about three years ago, we started the process of really investigating and, and seeing what it might look like to open an office in the St. George area. And we did so for a couple of reasons. Um, St. George is – you know, really St. George and some of the surrounding communities – in southern Utah are some of the fastest growing in the entire country. So there was that, certainly, but also just the, the sense of collaboration and the support for business and the support for entrepreneurism in those communities really made St. George a very attractive site to locate this new resource. So we are going to have a full-time staff person uh, probably starting in January based out of the St. George Federal Building. And that individual will be tasked with not only working with St. George, but all the surrounding communities in southern Utah to go to them, to collaborate, to really tailor how can we as the federal government tailor our resources to best assist you 
and support the small business owners in your community. So we're really excited to be there and, and really getting off the ground, uh, you know, not wasting any time, moving 100% forward. Can you maybe, Dan, give us some examples of, of what are some of the services, like say I own, uh, I don't know, say I own a restaurant right here on the Boulevard in St. George. What might the SBA and this new office uh, offer me? You bet. So just a, a quick overview of the Small Business Administration. I think most people know us for traditionally our loan guarantee programs. Mm-hmm. Um, the SBA partnering with lenders all over the country guarantee loans. So you'll go to a lender, they'll lend money to you, and the SBA will guarantee a portion of that loan to make it more tenable for that private lender to get that small business the financing they need to get their business plan off the ground. But we also do a lot more than that. Um, We offer business counseling support, and we do that in partnership in Utah with um, the Small Business Development Center Network. And in St. George, you already have a great SBDC located there. It's at Dixie Technical College, uh, Jeff Mather and his crew. And they really serve as a point-of-entry counseling service. You know, you have a business plan. You want to get it scrutinized. You want to know, you know, what are the next steps to start my business? That's a counseling support service that SBA provides in partnership with the SBDC network. And that's, again, located at Dixie Technical College. Um, We also work with uh, government contracting. You know, the United States government is the largest procurer of goods in the world. Yet, like anything with the federal government, sometimes there's some assistance needed cutting through the bureaucracy and kind of getting through into that procurement pipeline. Yeah. So we work with small businesses to do government contracting and sell their goods to the U.S. government. Is there uh, a type of – I'm curious, as you as you uh, work with business owners, maybe potential business owners, do you, do you ever get to the point where, uh, you know, as, as, as you're counseling these people saying, eh, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea or is that not really your job? No, you know, it is our job. And I think that's where we really, you know, when you have a business plan, you're an entrepreneur. You know, there's a lot of great ideas out there, but if your business plan on the front end isn't in order and you don't have the right business plan to really grow and expand your business, then you're, you're going to have a tough time. But that's where our counseling support services can come in, mm-hmm. work in tandem with them, not to stifle that idea, but to really help them improve upon it, help them to understand the local regulatory system, the tax structure, you know, what licenses might be necessary, things that entrepreneurs that may be on the front end, they're just not even aware of. And so being able to impart some of that expertise, just that experience, um, you know, iron sharpens iron. And so that counseling process can certainly do that. So maybe if I come in and say, hey, I want to sell orange colored long johns in St. George, Utah, you might say, well, all right, let's, <laughs> let's talk about this. First of all, it doesn't... It, except for maybe the day you were here for the ribbon cutting, it doesn't get that cold in St. George. And maybe you shouldn't limit yourself to just orange, right? <laughs> we, we, we might have a conversation about maybe converting that long John business to shorts or something to there that. There you go. Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I think it's a fair, I think that would be a fair critique. But, I mean, those are the conversations that entrepreneurs, I think, overwhelmingly want to have on the front end. And, you know, again, the the idea is not to discourage, but it's also to be realistic. And if someone's going to put their savings, their their sweat, and their personal equity into something, we want to make sure that that plan is scrutinized. And so that's a certainly a service that we can provide. I think I, maybe I'm wrong here, but I feel like everyone has in them some idea for a business that they feel like would have been, you know, would would have been a, a huge idea, something that would maybe maybe not get rich is the is the right word, but maybe be a successful 
business. So mm-hmm. it seems like you guys are providing a pretty good little gap here to help people uh, not only maybe make some of those uh, dreams come true, but also to help refine those because having an idea and then putting it on paper and actually making it work aren't the same thing. You got it. You got it. But I think, and absolutely, but on an encouraging note, I mean, let's, let's talk about Utah as a whole. I mean, you look at the state of Utah, 99% of the businesses in the state are small businesses. Utah has over 301,000 small businesses that employs over a half a million people. So that's close to 40, 46% of the state's workforce. So obviously, there's a lot of small business owners. There's a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs whose ideas have taken off. They, I mean, they are the, when we say they're the backbone of the economy, it's not just the same. It, it's the reality, and that's certainly the case in Utah. But we're there to help them. And, you know, it's not only when you start your business, it's kind of growing and expanding. What's that next step? And so we certainly work along alongside those small businesses and want to be a resource to them also as they're uh, expanding their operation. Dan, you referenced earlier uh, COVID-19. Obviously, that's been, uh, especially back in March and April when we had some lockdowns, that's been tough for small businesses. How can you guys at the SBA help now as we navigate through these dangerous and shark-infested waters as small business owners? You bet. I mean, certainly with COVID, it has been a, a major challenge. And I think the one takeaway for me is just the resiliency and the innovation of small business owners across this country to push forward. Um, it is no doubt a challenging time, but there's some really creative and innovative thinkers out there doing a, a number of great things and continuing to change their business models to make it work. And so it just really highlights that. For us at the Small Business Administration, our focus the past few months in support of small business has really been in the implementation of the Paycheck Protection Program. And that was a program authorized by Congress. Um, We did over a half a trillion dollars in small business loans to help allow them to retain their employees as well as pay for some other allowable expenses. Um, And those loans are forgivable if used for certain purposes. Now we are really waiting to see what Congress does next. That program has since, uh, the authorization has since expired. So Congress is working fast and furious right now, I know, in Washington to see if there might be another extension of that program, as well as some other additional small business assistance. So that could happen in the next two weeks. So we're anxiously preparing and beginning to ramp up for that. But in the meantime, um, absent some of those new programs and resources from Congress, we are really working with small businesses, again, on their business plans. How can they retool things to, to deal with the current circumstances, whether that's you know mandatory closures, maybe it's getting more of a web presence, so helping them with that, yeah. or just working with them to, you know, how can we get rid of some of the, cut, cut some of the fat from their budgets? How, what, what can we do to lessen some of their liabilities and expenditures? And so really it's all of the above and, and tailoring those resources to the business's specific needs. So it's, it's been a very busy few months, and I anticipate it's going to be another busy few months as we move forward here and hopefully getting out of this pandemic. All right, he's Dan Nordberg from the uh, SBA. Dan, I got to run. I got uh, Congressman Stewart on the line uh, coming up next. But thank you so much for spending a few minutes with us. Hey, thank you. And, and just one last kudos to our the Senate delegation, Senator Lee, Senator Romney, as well as Congressman Stewart, for their support in getting this office in St. George. We could not have done it without them. So that's a good note to end on. Thank you, Andy. All right, thanks for calling today. Appreciate it. All right, let's go uh, right to Congressman Stewart. Chris, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning. 
Thanks for holding on. I don't know if you heard that, but Dan Nordberg from the SBA got a little kudos your way there. That was cool. Well, yeah, he and he and the SBA and, frankly, bankers uh, have done a just remarkable job in the last eight months now. I mean, it's incredible what they've done, and many of them have worked very, very hard. I mean, 18-hour days, day after day, and we're, we're really grateful for the work they've done to, as we've tried to save small businesses and companies around the country. Yeah, you know, I did a bit earlier on the program today about lockdowns and how California's uh, g- getting back down to the lockdown things and, and uh, just the uh, what it's doing to people, and it's you know, I, there, there's got to be a better answer. I, I think I think they're headed down a very bad road out there in L.A. County in particular. So, well, I just don't think some of these individuals, these leaders, have measured the human cost. Right. And I, and I will always remember talking to a young man. I didn't know him, but he reached out. This is probably in April. He's 26 years old. He has three children. He washes windows for a living, and he, he does pretty well. And he's in tears. He's just, he's just nearly broken by this, going, how in the world am I going to feed my kids? They have taken away my ability to provide for my family. And whether you're talking about suicide prevention, whether you're talking about the 300,000 kids that will starve to death this year around the world directly because of lockdowns, I mean, look, we have to do what we can to keep people safe, but you've got to measure that against the cost as well. And many times these people act as if there is no cost. Well, that's because to them there isn't. Governor Newsom goes about and he, he goes out to restaurants and lives his life and he gets a paycheck. And he doesn't, I don't think, appreciate at all what it's like, how, how terrifying it is for business people uh, who are just trying to make a living. And uh, just a one illustration to, to that to fact, what you're talking about, Japan has been very... Uh, very uh, in the forefront with locking things down, trying to control this virus. Japan in the month of October had more suicides than they have had for all year in COVID-19 deaths. That's an illustration of, now I know the stigma in Japan is not as bad as it is in the U.S. with suicide, but that's just a tragic number uh, there. But uh, really is it? Go ahead. Well, we just, see it, we just see it all over the world. Uh, you know, but, you know, Andy, on the good news is, uh, the president and, and Congress and, and this private practice or this private uh, government partnership of the Operation Warp Speed, that we did something that some people said take 10, 12 years, if it can be done at all. Yeah. And we did it in eight months, and that is bringing these vaccines to to the public. And uh, and I'm just very hopeful that, you know, three months from now we've reached a point where uh, we're, we're able to go on and, and live our lives and re- reclaim some of the light that has been taken from us over the last half a year. Well, I, I like how you said that, reclaim some of the light that has been taken. And that covers a whole lot of things, literal, figurative, spiritual, emotional. Yep. Uh, it runs yeah. the gamut there. Uh, Chris, I wanted to talk yeah. to you a minute about your uh, new legislative package that you put together uh, to protect Utah's rural counties. Tell us what that's about. Well, uh, I got to tell you, this isn't terribly exciting for a lot of people. It's not going to go down as, uh, as the sexiest bill ever made, but it's incredibly important for rural Utah. Uh, and I, I think one of the keys is what we call the, the More Grants Act. And by the way, it's bicameral, it's House and Senate, and it's bipartisan. Uh, we've got our, our Democratic sponsor in the, in the Senate, and it's incredibly important to rural Utah. And it, it really comes down to this. You have some, pe- some counties like Garfield and Wayne County, that are five and four percent of those entire counties are private land. That's the only land that you wow. can't that you can tax. You can't tax federal land. You can't tax state land. And how is Garfield County, with five percent of its entire land in private hands, able to sustain 
any kind of operation. And so what this does, it's a simple thing, it's small, but when they apply, when they apply for USDA grants or other grants from the, the, from the government, they have to match it at 50%. And it just says for these counties, you only have to match it at 25%, which uh, is going to make a huge difference to them. I mean, it will allow them all sorts of access to funding, and it also provides a mechanism where the federal government actually helps them to apply for the grants and to write these grant applications because a lot of times they just don't have the staffing to do that. Uh, again, it, it, it's not terribly exciting for a lot of people, but for those people living in these communities and, and for the leadership in these communities, it's a big deal, and we're really, really proud of it. And we're certain this is going to become law in the next few months. Awesome, awesome. Uh, you know, I've been wanting – I think we, we, we listen to the Rush Limbaugh show. We listen to Sean Hannity, Mark Levin, and, and the gang, and uh, people are still a little confused about what's going on with – the election votes and the lawsuits with President Trump. Uh, I was hoping we could get somebody that's a little closer to understanding it all. Uh, you, co- uh, Chris, to, to explain a little bit more. Well, you know, what's ironic is I don't know that I am closer to it because it's outside of uh, congressional jurisdiction. I'm like you, Andy. I'm just watching the news. I'm just trying to read and stay informed. I've had people over the last two weeks call me and say, hey, what are you doing? you got to do something. And like. Congress has no no authority over this. Mm. You know, we, we're not the executive. The executive is, is the, you know, the branch of government that's vested with enforcing the law. We're not these, these state uh, uh, governors or the state secretary of states or the attorney generals and our attorneys general. And it's very, very frustrating. But I'll tell you this, Andy. In our history, we have never had a scenario with, with so many unanswered questions. We have never had a scenario where half of the country, and in fact, by some polling, even more than that, including a lot of Democrats, look at this election and go, yeah, I think there was probably cheating that took place. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if the American people break faith, if they lose their faith that the electoral process is fair, then we lose our republic. I mean, there's been plenty of times in my life that I've been disappointed in an election, a presidential election. Yeah. There's, there's been a moment or two where I thought, oh, the world's going to come to an end. But it doesn't. You kind of regroup, you, you, you gather up, and you start fighting for the next election. Say, well, we're going to come back and win again, and we do. But this is the first time where people are saying, well, I'm not going to vote anymore because they cheated me out of my vote. Right. And uh, you take four or five small cities in Atlanta or Wisconsin or, or Pennsylvania, and you can tip a presidential election in a couple cities. I mean, we have got to restore faith in this thing, or there's no way we can govern ourselves. And uh, there are so many questions that have to be answered before we can restore faith. And then we've got to make changes so that this never, ever happens again. Yeah, I think that's probably, I I think you hit the nail on the head. The biggest frustration right now is uh, not that Donald Trump lost necessarily, but that he maybe probably won and it's it's being taken away. I I am like you, Chris, and like a lot of uh, Utahns, I feel like that, uh, the the voting process is now compromised. There is, you know, it's like it's like playing a, a game. You know, playing a game of football, and uh, you get down to the you know get down to the five yard line, and they say, oh, you, you, well, we changed the end zone. It's now twenty five yards away instead of five yards away, uh, right yeah. in the middle of the game. That's not fair. Yeah, and, and look, we don't really know yet if if there was uh, election fraud to the point it could have tipped the election, but we have to find out. That's the thing that frustrates me. And so many people, they treat you like you're an idiot for asking the question. I'm going, have you not read the news? Have you not seen this evidence? And, for example, this, uh, this video 
where uh, where they they shut down the the uh, counting. They they people leave, and then they appear to pull ballots out of suitcases. And the explanation for that is absurd. Yeah. I mean, you can't watch the video and then, then listen to the Democratic explanation and go, okay, that makes sense. No, it doesn't at all. And we've got to answer those questions. So, look, I truly don't know. Fact is, is that no one knows if this would have tipped the election. But we have to find out. And we also have to put in some way put in safeguards so that once again, Andy, we don't do this. We don't do this in four years. You've got to be able to have confidence in this process or we can't govern ourselves. People will lose such faith in their own government that they won't be governed by that. And that's my great fear. And this is not one that we can just nanny-poo away. We have got to get answers to this, and we have got to be fair to the American people and say we're not going to let it happen. There's got to be real verification of real people who take real votes with identification. And I think that, that that's as simple as it gets. Do you have another two, three minutes yep. to take a, a call or two, Chris? Yep, yep, yep. All right, uh, caller, you're on with Andy and with uh, Congressman Stewart. How are you today? Doing very well. I want to thank uh, Congressman for all of his fine work. I I feel very strongly about uh, our people in Congress should support our president, and we're not getting that from a few of them. True, especially uh, Republicans. And I, I yeah. there was several remarks have been made on the air that I didn't vote for and name, I, I don't think that's right. That's all I have to say. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, the president and I have become, have become close. He's someone that I have tremendous respect for. I mean, if any other politician had gone through what this president has gone through for going on five years now, they would be curled up in a ball in the corner. Yeah. And his backbone and courage in standing up to this incessant, constant, criticism that is almost entirely untrue i mean for four years we were told he was a russian spy how absurd is that yeah and and sitting on the house intel committee i knew early on it was absurd uh, and that's really how the president and i got closest because of my my willingness and my responsibility got to tell american people this is nonsense it's not true i mean the, the, the fact they call him a racist again it's absurd tell me what he's ever done or said that's racist and they talk about Charlotte. Anyone who reads that quote from Charlottesville knows that it's untrue. But it's one of these things where the media says that uh, long enough and, and often enough it becomes the truth. And it's just simply a lie. And, uh, look, I want to defend the president because I am so grateful for his policies. But at some point you want to defend the president because the criticism and the assault against him is just frankly so un-American. It's, so, it, it's just so wrong to take an individual and to lie about him again and again and again for years and years. And I think anyone under those circumstances needs to be defended. It's just wrong to do that to someone. Yeah, I agree, I agree with you. Uh, just a quick anecdote about uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, years ago, I was friends with a guy by the name of, his last name was Hyde. I was actually friends with his son. We were about the same age, Chris. And uh, uh, his dad was a vice president of uh, Trump casinos. And uh, his dad and some other people were killed in a helicopter crash. And Donald Trump, well, long before he was a celebrity, long before he was obviously a politician, uh, Donald Trump stepped up and he took care of that family. He promised the widow that he would pay uh, her husband's wages for the rest of her life. He took, he made, created college funds for all the kids and promised to pay for their colleges. And to me, it, it, I know it's anecdotal, but to me, that's 
That's the heart of Donald Trump, not whatever else anybody, whatever else lies they make up about him. I know I got the guy personally because I know a story, uh, a personal story about him. Yeah, and I tell you, Andy, that's that's just a fact. I mean, I don't think I know anyone in leadership who cares more about just hardworking, working class middle America than this president does. That's why he says we're going to put America first. That's why he fights for putting America first is because he knows he's fighting for just normal guys like you and me. Yep. Just people who are out, you know, just working stiffs out trying to make a living, which is all I've ever been. And, and for people who, uh, you know, who live back here in D.C. or in California don't understand that. But this president understands it. It's pretty remarkable and a little bit ironic. But he understands and feels that way so deeply when, you know, he's a, he's a wealthy Manhattan real estate developer. But for some reason, he just has this this heart of gold when it comes to just working Americans, which is why he can hold a rally and 70,000 working Americans will show up to hear Chris, uh, we're losing you and we're out of time. Thanks so much for coming on today. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Congressman Chris Stewart here on the Andy Griffin Show. Uh, unfortunately, we've run out of time. We've got about five seconds for news. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. I'm Andy Griffin. We'll, we'll talk to you tomorrow.